I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at fourteen ninety nine, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Come on, lads, it's time to kick off. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. Harry, what's rocking your snack boat this time? Well, I made the mistake, Dan, of buying some pineapple cubes, which I remembered, I remembered from boyhood with great nostalgia. But what I'd forgotten about them, maybe it's a bit like childbirth, but I'd, I'd forgotten the pain of eating a pineapple cube, um, because it is a cube, as it suggests, and it's covered in rough sugar. And um, I feel at the moment like my, like someone's taken an angle grinder to the roof of my mouth. So I would I recommend them. The thought of them's nice, but I wouldn't. I would. I'm, I'm just going to keep them in the bag and look at them with a and have a warm feeling without eating them. That's the best way. And I've also bought some. I was excited. I bought some sarsaparilla drops as well, um, because I was remember my granddad used to say this thing. Give me a sarsaparilla in a dirty glass, oh. um, which which I assumed was something from a film, like a Bob Hope film. I imagine like Son of Paleface or one of those things. But I looked it up on the internet just now, and it's actually a, one of those lines from a film that everyone quotes as if it's from a film, but it isn't actually from a film. <laughs> what happens is that in one of the road films, I think, Bob Hope says, I'll have a lemonade, and Bing Crosby's sitting beside him and says, in a dirty glass. But for some reason, it's become this sarsaparilla in a dirty glass, and everyone thinks that it's from a from a film, but it isn't. A bit like Play It Again, Sam, I suppose. So anyway, so I've got those, and it's, it's, they have brought back warm memories of going many years ago to Fitzpatrick's Temperance Bar in Rottenstall, which is, I think, the last temperance hotel left in Britain. And they used to they used to have um, sarsaparilla there um, on draft. Um, possibly now they probably have craft sarsaparilla as well now in a keg. <laughs> That same movement brought the world your beloved dandelion and burdock, I think, didn't it? It is. Well, I, th- I think um, Fitzpatrick's do actually do a dandelion. I noticed. I looked on their. I looked on their website, and they've got a dandelion and burdock cordial, Ooh. which I'd be very interested in trying. Mister Fitzpatrick's <laughs> <laughs> temperance 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 bar in Rottenstall, Lancashire. Um, although, of course, Andy is quite near another another place that makes sarsaparilla, which is Baldwin's. Um, in the Walworth Road. They've been making sarsaparilla since 1844. I'm casting my net wide in the hope of getting free sarsaparilla. 
There's probably a dentist next door to each sarsaparilla outlet, I would think. It's probably the, the two things go, go together quite well, I think. Get your teeth rotted. There's no, no alcohol, but you have no teeth left. <laughs> That's the price you pay for yeah. temperance. Any other news from England's gritty northeast? Well, I, I, well, you say that, Dan, but I'm I'm living in officially Britain's happiest town. Yeah, noticed the happiest town of Hexham for the second year in a row. It's been voted the happiest town in Britain. So obviously, you know, they're just opening a drive-through McDonald's there, and I've suggested that they that, that they should call the Happy Meals. They should just call them Hexham Meals. <laughs> Um, I don't know why it's voted the happiest town in Britain. I, it would be, I'd be far happier if it had a proper Northern League team in an old yeah. ramshackle ground with a gents in a porter cabin, with a possibly with a cement mixer next to the urinal. But I realise that I have niche niche things that make me happy. <laughs> um, so yes, yeah, so I'm, so anyway, yes, yeah, so in the, the happiest town in the northeast. Um, I did notice this when I was watching the NFL, and I noticed that the the American commentator at the end of the second quarter he said, "And that concludes the opening stanza." Oh. Which I, I thought that would be good at the end of a half if they, if the halves were called stanzas. I'm surprised that Barry Davis never never used that. He seemed a sort of poetic sort of fellow who'd have done that kind of thing. I'd like to see that introduced. Also a bit saddened this week to learn of the death of one of my boyhood idols, Joe Laidlaw, a Middlesbrough inside forward. He's a very a sort of burly inside forward. Definitely would have, uh, we talked about Chunky Raiders, I think, last time. Ah, well, podcast. I, I have some more to say about that. Actually, oh, up. do you? Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, well, well, I don't know. Well, good. No, well, you carry he on was... with the Joe Laidlaw, though. You don't, don't right, yeah, well, I think Joe Laidlaw certainly would have fitted the bill. I think he would have justified the term Chunky Raider. Um, played it for Middlesbrough, and then he moved on to Carlisle. He was very successful at Carlisle. Played in their promotion team, and the team that got to the top of the football league. Uh, went on to play for Doncaster, where he's very popular as well, and, and then moved on to Portsmouth. Um, where he was, I think he was captain of the team that got promoted from the fourth division. I mean, he was described, uh, his, his off-the-field activities were um, of the old sort of 70s maverick style. He was described by Pompey legend Alan Knight as a bit of a rogue. Now, when he was at Portsmouth, he'd, he'd come through the Middlesbrough youth team with David Armstrong, um, the, the sort of left-sided midfield player. And David Armstrong was playing for Southampton while Joe Laidlaw was at Portsmouth. And David Armstrong had a had a an old English sheepdog, possibly bought from Kevin Keegan, uh, and the the old English sheepdog disappeared. And then he got a phone call from Joe Laidlaw, who said he knew the men who had the dog, and that for a small fee he could get it back for him. So David Armstrong met him in a pub and gave him some money, and lo and behold, the dog came back. All this is in David Armstrong's autobiography, but nothing's really fully explained about it. But anyway, <laughs> so that was uh, so that was uh, Joe Laidlaw. So R.I.P. Chunky Raider and Dog Kidnap Negotiator. Yeah. And how about life in London town, Andy? Well, uh, the the young neighbours somewhere below me, I think I've mentioned before, for their strenuous activities, they seem to have stopped <laughs> doing that. But what, what what's happening instead is this kind of tap taps or hammering noises some in the evenings that something is being constructed i think maybe they're building a love hotel or a jacuzzi <laughs> but hopefully they've checked the lease to make sure that's allowed but um speaking of improvements to a flat i was recently talking uh to my plumber um he's not my plumber obviously actually. he does a wide range of jobs across southeast london doesn't just work for me but he's a maidstone fan he's too young to have seen them in the the brief spell he had in the Football League. But his, his dad did. But his dad then switched to Gillingham when that incarnation of Maidstone went under. And he never went back to Maidstone when they reformed. He stuck with Gillingham. It's like he got a taste for league football and couldn't go back to non-league. It's like that's the reverse of what's supposed to happen, isn't it? People often say, you know, I found a whole new world in non-league. It's much more honest. You know, it's players who are <laughs> postmen or PE teachers or whatever. But no, 
League One football is where it's at. You know, some players are on about four grand a week finishing 13th. It's, it's much more relatable. <laughs> um, if you're a plumber. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. <laughs> I don't know if his dad's a plumber as well, actually, whether it's a family thing. I don't, I'm not sure if he is. Um, uh, but, yeah, so he's, he often tells me about his, his trips to see Maidstone away as, as he's sort of hammering away there underneath my sink. I had an important email message this week, uh, which uh, the subject line was, PSG delivers gorillas as global partner. And I thought, well, that could go wrong, couldn't it? If you thought you, were, if you, you, thought you just ordered a couple of DVDs and a charity Christmas calendar, instead something altogether bigger is left in your outside bin cupboard, if you have one. I have one. Um, but disappointing that it turned out to be an online groceries delivery service in a new partnership with PSG. And the gorillas chairman, I don't know why they're called gorillas. Maybe they have dress-up Fridays where they have to put on gorilla costumes. He says of PSG... We share many key values such as boldness, authenticity, and team spirit. Gorilla's brand DNA is at the intersection of sport and lifestyle. Well, aren't we all, darling? You know, talk to the hand. The kids still say that, I don't know. Um, so off topic a bit, but I'll bring it round at the end, as, you, as you'll as you see. Um, following on for last time from that mention of Francis Lee being described as a chunky rider, we were just talking about uh, chunkiness in football just now, and uh, he was called that in the sticker album. Somebody um, uh, got in touch with him on Twitter and pointed me to a Twitter discussion recently that revealed that when John Le Carre was looking for a pen name when his first book was to be published, his real name, I think, was David Cornwall, I think, his publisher initially suggested Chunk Smith as, as, a, <laughs> as, as a name, not, not Chunk Smith as a surname like Arrowsmith or you know, some, like a maker of chunks, but Chunk, <laughs> chunk as a first name. It would have been a good alternative name for George Smiley. I think Sir Alec Guinness is Chunk Smith. <laughs> Someone with a name of that would certainly get things done. Yeah, we wouldn't mind whose, whose toes he stepped on. And also, as I said about pipe smoking managers recently, a football manager call that would be a good appointment for a team in their relegation battle. You know, with Chunk Smith at the helm, you'd, you'd finish safe in 15. Your idle boast of having an outside cupboard there, Andy. Well, it's an outside bin cupboard. I outside bin cupboard. It's very glamorous. <laughs> it's very London, I have yeah. to say. But it reminded me that I of the best feature of any house I've ever lived in. That when I lived in Gosforth, we had an actual rubbish chute that went down three floors to the to the bin. Oh, we've got one of those as well. Oh my yeah. god! Yeah, and we, we have the option of either leaving our bin bags in the bin cupboard, which I never do for complicated reasons I won't go into, or, or putting them down the chute. But the bin cupboard also, also contains the electricity meter, which oh, uh, is of significance to me at the moment because my electricity provider have just gone bust. So, um, yeah, mm. they're one of those companies who've just disappeared. So, God. see how that you ever plays heard the out. likes, Harry? That, that no, he's got, got, got that shoot. I mean, he must be tempted to go down that, to jump down that shoot at some point. <laughs> no, not with the amount of flies that are hovering around the outside of it permanently, no. <laughs> well, from our 50th podcast onwards, which you'll have heard if you're a WSC Supporters Club member on Patreon, we thought we should refresh things slightly. Our initial idea, Kevin Keegan sings the hits of Natalie and Bruglia, run into copyright issues, so instead we've introduced a new feature, which you'll hear later. We're also shifting our Patreon subscribers' questions and comments and any tweets of note to this intro babble portion of the podcast, so do keep sending things in. And we'll have just the one Record Breakers song from now on. Have a look at our supporters club at patreon.com slash comes to sign up for extra and longer podcasts. Jackpot tickets, pound a goal, draw at half time, win £500 yours tonight. Jackpot tickets, pound a goal, draw at half time, £500 prize draw, get yours your hats and tonight. scarves and pin badges. 
Your hats and scarves and pin badges. Get your hats and scarves and pin badges. Pin badges, hats, scarves. Hats and scarves and pin badges. Programmed. 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 Subscribe to When Saturday Comes and you'll get every issue delivered direct to your door in 100% recyclable wrapping, which we used to call a paper envelope. You'll also save money on the shop price, receive discounts on books and t-shirts and get free access to our complete digital archive. Sign up at shop.wsc.co.uk Jackpot ticket, pound a go, draw at half time, £500, yours to take on tonight. And joining me is when Saturday comes, Deputy Editor Tom Hocking to talk us through some of the contents in the next issue of the magazine, issue 416. Tom, can you pick out a few of the pieces that are in there? Yep. Um, so the new issue is out and it's the final one of the year. Um, and it's so hot off the press that um, the stock of them may well arrive at my door while we're recording this. Oh. So um, sorry sorry if I suddenly <laughs> disappear. The joys of having no office um, and we're all working from home there. So yeah, so uh, as we were going to press sort of the developing story, it was all about the fan-led review of football, um, which the government have undertaken and has already been dismissed as a Maoism <laughs> by, by uh, one of the Leeds executives, um, the sort of Leeds and Aston Villa executives were the first two sent out to sort of run down this fan-led review, dismiss it as Maoism, the pure thing of sort of a bit of wealth distribution from the Premier League downwards. So it's always interesting to see the responses for this. But um, the, I mean, overall, the fan-led review is actually very positive. It's a very positive thing to say. And it's not so often you get to say uh, say that about government plans for mm. football. It's it's always a major problem um, with improvements to the Premier League that the clubs in the Premier League and the top few of the Championship never want to vote to take away any money from themselves. Um, mm. So they, you know, they always want parachute payments because most of them are in danger of relegation at some point. Um, so they never want to take away those parachute payments of themselves, no matter what damage they actually do to the the football league below them. And most clubs at the top end of the championship want to get out of that division so they're rarely going to vote to protect that division itself um so really it needs to be imposed from the outside and i think one of the the things that has come out of um the protests against the european super league is that it's almost given the government a, a bit of a green light that sorting out some of these problems and sort of imposing a bit of control over the premier league would actually win them favor and you know the government always always happy to do stuff which wins them favor with voters and, and this one possibly would if if they can implement it and obviously the premier league executives are, are uh, already lining up to to try and stop that happening and there's a piece on world cup minnows in defense of world cup minnows isn't there this time but the, at the other end of sort of the the scale of of sort of premier league giants and stuff um there was quite a lot said this month after England beat San Marino 10-0 people like Michael Owen coming out and saying England shouldn't even be bothering with these smaller these smaller countries you know they really should be pre-qualifying so we've got a piece written by uh, Andy Murray and not not the tennis player of course um, a different Andy Murray who used to play uh, in Spain's sixth tier um, with a guy called uh, Jordi Escura, and I apologise if I've pronounced that slightly wrong, but um, he ended up with 65 caps for Andorra. Mm -hmm. uh, and Andy played with him for, for a few years in Spain and 
sort of when when Geordie used to come back from international duty, it was sort of all he was talking about was not the potentially heavy defeats he'd suffered with Andorra, but the pride of representing your country um, and how it was his right to represent the country in the same way it's, you know, Harry Kane's right to represent England. And that really that shouldn't be taken away because of the odd large scoreline, because large scorelines, let's be honest, they happen in all levels of football mm. they, they happen in the Premier League and no one's suggesting you should be relegated just for losing one match. Elsewhere, some pieces on referees. Yeah, so there's a, there's a crisis. Uh, I was going to say brewing in refereeing, but it's not really brewing. It's sort of, it's fully brewed, I think brewed. now. Yeah. It's a strong cup of tea. Um, yeah, <laughs> it definitely is. Um, it's it's sort of been exacerbated the, by the pandemic, but, but we are a, a bit of a breaking point for particularly grassroots referees. And, and one of our writers, uh, Jacob Tate, he likens it to sort of HGV drivers. Well, the number of drivers has dropped significantly in recent years, but the demand remains um, for, for everything that they do, which has resulted in a shortage of products, which you may have noticed in the news recently. But the, the, the same is happening in grassroots refereeing, where uh, over the pandemic, when, when football stopped, um, and even graf- grassroots football stopped, people basically found better things to do with their time than have abuse screamed at yeah. them from angry parents or even, you know, it's not just the the very grassroots level. It, it's, you know, even the sort of the lower leagues um, right up to the Premier League, you see a huge amount of abuse for referees. Um, and it's a stat that Jacob mentions is that 7,000 referees leave the game each year. Um, and the, the the football association sort of rely on being able to replace those referees, but what they're finding now is that they can't. Um, and what's that? What that's meant is a huge amount of referees that are still refereeing are now are now really in demand, mm-hmm. um, and they're really getting to sort of pick and choose which games. The result of which is that they they basically punishing teams who are particularly badly behaved towards them because they just don't need to referee their games anymore they can they can choose the teams that are nice and and whose parents don't shout at them but I I think we all know that it's much better when there is a neutral referee rather than Mm. you know the parent of the of the striker (laughs) going on to to referee and and things like that but we're getting to a point now where there just aren't enough referees to do all the games so maybe we all need a bit of a rethink as to how we abuse referees at all levels, because otherwise we're going to end up end up really struggling. And obviously, the the result is that if there aren't as many grassroots referees, then there aren't as many to promote to the up the leagues, and the standard of refereeing across the game will get worse because the pool is smaller. Really, mm-hmm. the only good news uh, for referees in England is that they aren't alone, because we've got an accompanying piece uh, by Ian Plenderleith on what it's like in Germany and and broadly I'll read read Ian's piece to discover but broadly the answer is it's just as bad in Germany Mm. so um, it's not just England where this is a problem and sort of the whole game and and the watching the people who watch the game sort of need a bit of a rethink on how they treat referees I think and we've got all the usual regulars shots the letters page the tv reviews and what's Harry's column about this time yeah so we've got um we've got Harry on chaotic windy matches um (laughs) which is particularly topical at the moment um I, I think we've all seen sort of uh, the, the great joy of a goalkeeper taking a goal kick only to discover 
that the ball is coming straight back at him after reaching the halfway line. Um, so so that's particularly enjoyable um, article. We've also got an, an object lesson about um, a T-shirt bought at Socrates' bizarre sort of one-off appearance um, in at Garforth Town, um, <laughs> which sort of came about due to the, the owner of, of the club's links to sort of a Brazilian soccer mm. school and resulted in an, an beyond aging Socrates uh, just sort of turning out turning out for this in, in this sort of cold weather having been sort of warmed up on the bench um, and he comes on and has a few touches but but not a huge amount he misses he, he misses the chance to have a penalty he's brought on just after he, he's a penalty so he misses out on that um, and it's about a t-shirt that commemorated the occasion. We've also got our team spirit about uh, Queen's Park Rangers, um, about how they sort of transformed by flair players and um, in the sort of 70s and 80s and also more recently how how their their boardroom chaos has seemed to settle down a bit and they're now pushing for promotion from the championship again. Um, and we've also got our usual match of the month and it's which is you, Dan. Yeah, my my yearly effort. Yeah, find, you're yearly finding effort. 1800 <laughs> words. <laughs> yeah, it's nice of you to contribute occasionally, Dan. No, um, yeah. yeah. It's I mean, lazy. It, it, yeah, it's, it's always a difficult time for Match of the Month because there's obviously you know, a lot of games going on, league's positions are changing quite quickly, and there's no definitive sort of key relegation or promotions matches going on just yet that won't be potentially out of date quite quickly. Um, and there's also a lot of postponements at short notice. So we just decided to send you in uh, our photographer, Colin McPherson. And to, to the pleasure lands of our broth. Yes, which is, indeed, just looks it looks like one of the most lovely stadiums by the sea. It, it really is, actually. I do get living up here, but being an Englishman, I do get asked about which grounds people should go to on stag dues and things like that. <laughs> and our broth is always high up because it's an interesting little town as well, with the, the harbour and the smoking and all of the rest of it. But yeah, it's the as well as being closest to the sea, which you'll read a lot of places, it's also closest to an amusement arcade of any ground I can think of, to the extent that you can if the if the wind's blowing a certain way, you can hear the slot machines playing their tunes and things during sec- quiet second <laughs> halves. You know, there's there's a, a small bungee jump um outside the arcade and sometimes you can see a kid popping up and just seeing sections of the match so it's got all of those charms yeah. that's a good way of, of getting into a sold out ground yeah, you sort of see snippets yeah. of it yeah. like a flick book um, <laughs> but it also reminded me i, I get is is it fair to say our is sort of a scottish equivalent of, of like visiting grimsby where you've got cleethorpes and you've got the you've got the arcades along there it's possibly nice is it i don't know if it's nicer than cleethorpes i've never had the pleasure of going to our so i don't know yeah, and it's slight, you know, it's part of the town, but it's a walk out of the town uh, centre slightly. And yeah, it's, it's highly recommended. It's, it's very strange because you walk past a load of camper vans that are all looking out to sea and you think, are they having a better day than me with what I'm about to do? <laughs> but it was a good game. The only disappointment, actually, of our brother versus Queen of the South was that the weather was beautiful. It was a gorgeous autumnal day. Mm. And one of the great things about our brother is the sea encroaching over the wall and soaking a corner taker. It's a gift to a writer <laughs> of probably three or 400 words, but it didn't happen, unfortunately. It was far too lovely. <laughs> And we're keen to express our sympathies to the family of Dave Roberts, fantastic writer. And just 
he passed away last week and just looking at the tweets, I, I'm not alone in being someone that he helped and emailed and was very kind to over the years, author of the Bromley Boys. And he wrote for When Saturday Comes on numerous occasions as well, didn't he, Tom? Yeah, he did. It's very, it's, it's, Dave sadly died at the end of November after after a long illness. Um, and you're right, you mentioned the Bromley Boys there, which is one of his books, which was made into a film with Martin yeah. McCutcheon and Alan Davis. Um, but he's also, a couple of his, his other books, sort of our, our listeners may know, Home and Away, um and 32 programs mm. and i think uh they've had this sort of this uh ability to brilliantly capture sort of the lives of non-league fans um and any, everyone involved in non-league football so i really recommend our listeners seek out some of his books if, if you haven't read them and he he did also occasionally contribute he wasn't a regular contributor to wsc but he did he did do some occasional articles for us um including an article which i i, I dug out um on advertising in non-league programs from January 2013, um, where he talked about sort of the lengths companies would go to to link their brands with football. Um, And one example he picked out was from a Sutton United program. Uh, The advert was, uh, let Sutton keep out the goals, let Anglian windows keep out the drafts and the cold. (laughs) <laughs> uh, which is yeah a, a bit of sort of Dave's Dave's humor sort of summed up there and it, he also wrote something in June 2016 about he was he was the person in uh, in the suit of Bromley's mascot uh, Ronin Raven which is, is always fascinating to me people in, in those suits um, and, and what happens in those suits and other than getting very hot um, he said he sort of recounts recounted quite a funny story where um, an elderly Torquay fan asked him why he was a raven and he's sort of responding and having to raise his voice to speak through the suit he responded that there was a raven on Bromley's badge and the fan said yes but why um, and Dave realized he didn't know um, and then the Torquay f- fan just sort of walked away disapprovingly shaking his head and saying you really should know that um, so, so the, the life of uh, yeah the, the the life of a mask someone in the mascot suits there um, but I think you know Dave had a really warm and and funny writing style um, and I never had the pleasure of meeting him myself but that style was also clearly reflected in his personality um, and he was he was a really important part of especially the non-league writing community and you could see that with tributes on on Twitter um, when his wife Liz announced uh, that he died so um, yeah we'd just like to send our condolences to, to Liz and his three children and all of their family and friends really because it's a very sad loss yeah Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove. Here we go. Walton Casuals, Wayne Biggins, depictions of the Anglo-Italian Cup in the music of Cat Stevens. And it's landed on Alternative World Cups. Harry, what in all the world does that make you think of? Well, it made me think a little bit of the uh, Mundia Avocat, Dan. The, uh, The World Cup of the Bar Association. Um, which is, uh, for, I should say that, I don't know quite what the difference is, but there is also another World Cup, um, which is for, which is a World Cup for lawyers. Um, it's called the Copa Mundial de Juristas, the Jurists and Lawyers World Cup. But anyway, the, that's, that's quite a new arrival. In fact, it hasn't been held yet because of uh, COVID, the Copa Mundial de Juristas. Um, but the Mundia Avocat, the World Cup of the Bar Association, that's been held since 1983. Uh, next year's tournament is in Marrakesh. Uh, winners over the years, quite some quite unusual winners, Morocco, Serbia, Mexico, Belgium and Algeria. Um, they also have to note that Italy have won it five times and Brazil three times. 
Um, England, I should say, have never never won it and don't seem to don't seem to have even got in the last four or possibly even qualified for the tournament. I don't know why not. It's possibly because of their traditional kit of wigs and gowns. I imagine. <laughs> um, it also makes me think of the the Ireland games uh, as well. Another there's football in that, of course. Uh, strong showing from Innis Mon, um, which is which is Anglesey, who I noticed uh, feature um, Ifian Williams played for them. I, I saw him play many times for Hartlepool United, a very good striker. I think he was top scorer in one of the tournaments. So he comes from Bangor. I'm not sure whether it, maybe he lives on Anglesey. I'm not sure. Mm. Um, I also know that in the Ireland games, mysteriously Gibraltar play in it. Although I don't think Gibraltar's an island, unless apart from psychologically, obviously. <laughs> Um, there's a few, you know, there's a few other teams that have played in that over the years. I think Ireland, uh, the Ireland Islands, which are between Sweden and Finland, playing it. They've been quite successful in it, but they actually do have a. There is actually a Finnish first division side on Ireland, uh, FK Mariham, which I think have won. I've actually won the Swiss, the Finnish championship. Uh, other countries in it are Green. I know it's at Greenland playing it. Probably the biggest, the biggest island that play in it, and they were actually managed for a while by Set Piontek. Um, and the man behind the sort of Danish dynamite era, Danish team, but they don't—they haven't. I don't think they've ever won it. So no, no Inuit dynamite there. I don't think. Um, also, uh, it's going off slightly a tangent here, but I, I, uh, I mentioned, I think possibly on this program before, when we were talking about um, Danny McLennan and the, uh, the sort of British coaches in the in Africa, that there was this tournament in the Indian Ocean called the uh, Triangulaire which featured um, Madagascar, Reunion and Mauritius, um, the French colonies in the Indian Ocean. Um, but actually what I've discovered is that the Fre- that there is a, there's a Coupe de l'Outre-Mer, which is the overseas football kit for, kit, uh, cup for French overseas departments and territories. Um, but that, that replaced a tournament called the Outre-Mer Champions Cup, which was a club competition between the champion clubs of the French colonial territories and some of the finals in that one of the in two thousand the last final of that in 2007 um u.s stand tamponez from reunion beat l'etoile de mornalo of guadeloupe 3-0 in the final well the difference the the the, the distance between reunion and guadeloupe is 8262 miles <laughs> So I know this isn't about an alternative World Cup, but has anyone? Tra- you might say, has anyone travelled further than that to play in the final of a cup competition? Well, I can tell you, Dan, that they have, because oh. <laughs> wait for it. I need to look quickly through my notes here. There was a game in 1997. Reunion side Saint Denis played Manu Ura of Tahiti, uh, travelling a distance of 9,264 miles to compete in that game. Fuck. <laughs> Staggering now, you might say, well, what about? Well, I looked up, if Vladivostok were to play Aberdeen in the Europa League, in the unlikely event that would happen, that would only involve a journey of 7,973 miles. So don't, you know, don't bother looking at that. If you're looking for a team who've travelled further, put that out of your mind. But that's, and I should say that 9,264 miles is a straight line between the two places mm. it's not so how they got there how long it took them to get there i don't know but anyway so that's what it makes me think of Dan, the alternative world cup <laughs> although that wasn't a world cup i think i think it was a diversion worth taking it certainly was a long diversion yes yeah, so it was in, sand, in sand versus manu ura 
What a game that would have been, 1997. And Andy, what does it bring to mind for you? Well, the first one is the Medical Football World Cup, which is an annual tournament. Uh, Britain have won it quite often. They won the most recent one in 2019. It hasn't been played since due to COVID. And someone you just mentioned earlier, there, Kenny Duker, um, a former uh, striker in the low divisions in Scotland, who's also a doctor, is now an A&E doctor, I think. Um, he's now about 40, I think. He's the best-known recent player for, for the British team. And the rules say that... I'm quoting it. Any captain has the right to select two players from the opposing team to answer a written questionnaire based on fundamental medical topics at the end of the match. So you should apply this generally to football, do you think? Or at the very least, obviously, you just have questions <laughs> about football. So you'd need, you'd need to have memorised the names of FA Cup winners, say, or, or which ground is the highest above sea level. Although that, of course, is, uh, is quite a contentious subject. <laughs> there might be some disputes about the answer to that one. Um, there's also the Winkleman Cup, which is an annual tournament for archaeologists. It was created 30 years ago. It was named after a pioneering uh, of archaeologist of, I think, the 18th century called Johann Joachim Winkleman. Um, we heard about it recently as we were asked to sponsor one of the teams, but we had to decline as we don't really have sort of spare funds to sort of do kind of things like promote, you know, promote people's shirts mm. and stuff that we've never really done it. But the next one is being staged uh, in Oxford uh, next year, having been put off for two years because of COVID. And it, it was initially played between German teams, but now involves teams from up to 10 countries. One of the teams in the latest competition I see was called the Dresden Henge Kickers, which I quite like. Um, each team has to have at least one female player in it. Um, I don't know to what extent the profession is reflected in the way the tournament is run. I mean, is the trophy buried somewhere and you have to find it? You know, or is, is the trophy a mosaic floor that you have to dig up, possibly? Um, there's, um, there's also, and similar to the Ireland Games, but possibly on a slightly bigger scale, there's also the Conifa World Cup, which is a confederation of independent football associations they have a european championship and a world cup and the criteria for for members is that the the uh, are the territories that are not members of fifa but either uh, represent ethnic minorities within those countries or are regions of another country with a, a distinct identity though not necessarily a, a, a different ethnicity on, on that basis yorkshire for example i would say rather contentiously now have a, have a team of members of, of the European section of that. As do Cornwall, although at least Cornwall can claim more of a national identity and they have their own uh, uh, language, unless Yorkshire can't plain speaking as their language. I don't know. <laughs> sort of might, might want to question that. Um, some of the teams you could carry out say, OK, you know, they have a case... Um, for being distinct teams. And there's the Sami people who have the people of the Arctic Circle in northern Scandinavia, or it used to be called LAPS. They're not called that anymore because I think they see it as a, a sort of a pejorative term. But or there's a, And there's a team for Kurdistan and there's one representing Romani people in Europe. But there are also some of these teams, I think, being used for broader political purposes that could seem more sinister. And the last World Cup, the Conifa World Cup, was played in England a couple of years ago. It was won by a team representing Hungarians in Ukraine. There are a few teams of Hungarian minorities, one from Slovakia and one from, from Romania. But I think the, these get, are getting support from the Hungarian government at some level. And certainly one of those teams at the tournament in the UK had some of those fans with the black T-shirts uh, cheering them on. Uh, another team is uh, Padania, which is basically northern Italy. It's about almost half of Italy, actually, in terms of the area they cover. But that's, it, it covers about eight or ten sort of ter- regions of Italy, but it's closely associated with the, the Northern League, Liga Nord, which is a, a right-wing nationalist movement, which wants to split Italy up into, I think, three territories. So in some cases, I think these tournaments are not exactly a gathering of, uh, of oppressed peoples, but more like a, a platform for 
in some cases, some rather dubious um, ideologies. There's actually a Conifer footballer in this month's match of the month that uh, we just discussed when we discussed issue 416 that I did the match of the month, Arbroath versus Queen of the South, and the Arbroath's excellent forward, Joel Nublay, plays for Cascadia. Have either oh, yes. of you heard of Cascadia? Yes, that's the that's North. It's British Columbia and Washington State, isn't it? And is it Oregon? Yeah, it's the northwest part of the US and Canada on the other side of that border, the Pacific coast. Oh, yeah, it's a Cascade Mountains, isn't it? There's quite a lot of survivalists live there, I think. Yeah, right. I didn't have a look whether it was a dubious thing or not. It seemed to be quite environmentally based, which maybe it'll find its time. But certainly, he scored two goals on his debut in the World Cup of 2018 against the Tamil Elam side so yeah I think Cascade is one of the more kind of right on ones I don't think there's much of a paramilitary thing there's <laughs> perhaps not quite so much of them it could get quite fighty this World Cup couldn't it we could, well, well Andy mentioned that Padania and, and the, the link to the Nor- uh, the League of Nord and the Northern League uh, the, the, the badly named Northern League because if you look up Northern <laughs> League and you want football you often get uh, Umberto Rossi he was the uh, right-wing leader of the Liga Nord, the Northern League. Um, but Padania's link with that is is really quite specific because from 2007 to 2012, the Padania team was actually managed by Renzo Bossi, who is the son of Umberto Bossi, and nicknamed Il Trotter, the Trout. Um, and he was he was um, he was involved as in a, in a slightly cliched manner. He was involved in as an Italian politician. He was involved in various nefarious activities. And in two, one of the thing that caught my eye about it was that in two thousand and seven, Italian police uh, searching his house uh, found discovered that he was the owner of a degree in economics and management from Crystal University in Albania. Um, which he'd managed to earn despite never setting foot in Albania or speaking a word of Albanian. Um, so just the type of man you'd want in charge of your international football team, really. So parallels there with uh, our, our famous Ian Duncan Smith, who famously used to claim to have a degree from the University of Perugia. I think people established he'd never, he didn't actually have that. And he doesn't, he doesn't <laughs> like it being brought up. So if he's a subscriber, sorry, Ian, but I had to mention it. That's right. Well, we're making manager of the Yorkshire team. Yeah, he's the ideal man for it. I'd also like to mention in the World Medical Cup. I know it's at the Australian team that play in that are nicknamed the Dockeroos. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> oh, you was easy with you with your ruse suffix. <laughs> I had an Australian dentist once who removed my, one of my wisdom teeth, and he, he kept calling them whizzies. He will soon have you whizzies out. <laughs> At least he didn't call them wizaroos, I suppose. It's time for the part of the podcast where one of us chooses a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Andy, what's your choice this time? Well, I've gone for Zullen v. Zullen v. Latenhoren, S-P-A-R-T-A, which spells out the club name Sparta, um, uh, which is, um, I think it translates as, shall we let you know Sparta, which I think there's a question asked in the song, who's the greatest team or something like that, to which the clause is replying, it's Sparta. Um, as is often the case well, in cities where there's one major club these days, Sparta are actually older than Rotterdam's uh, much better known club, Feyenoord. And I've had some success in the past, so they haven't won 
a trophy since they won the Cup in 1966. And this record came from 1985 when they played in the UEFA Cup and knocked out Hamburg uh, in the first round on, on penalties, a period when Hamburg had a very good team. It was only a couple of years since they'd been European champions. So they then lost to another German team, Mönchengladbach, in the second round. But they haven't played in Europe since. So there's a slightly mournful aspect to this because little did they realise um, when this record was made that over 30 years later that they'd still not be back in Europe. And uh, the, the spot of one of the... Uh, hadn't been relegated from the Dutch First Division together with the, the big three teams, Ajax, PSV and Feyenoord, when it set up in the mid in the mid 50s until um, the 90s. But since then, they have gone down, up and down three times. And when they were first relegated, when um, Frank Rijkaard was the manager just for that one season, his next, next coaching job was with Barcelona, which in a way is kind of evidence of how famous players do get opportunities that others wouldn't get. I mean, if you were a regular coach and you'd taken the team down from the Dutch First Division, you would not get the Barcelona job as, as your next job. And maybe slightly parallels here with, uh, dare I say it, with Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. Five wins in 25 league games at Cardiff City um, before he, uh, he took his next job in, in the UK at Man United. Maybe a, a more recent case in point. Anyway, uh, Zulin v. Hart-Lartenhoren, Sparta. Yes, I know that um, Sparta play in the same kit as Sunderland because the, um, the, the directors of Sparta saw Sunderland play and, and liked what they saw, so they copied it. And I also noticed that at that time, um, that the shirt sponsors were Burroughs, um, and Burroughs was a US company that made cash registers and ATMs, and it was founded by the grandfather of William S. Burroughs. So a strange connection with beat poetry. And that's the end of that stanza. That's the end of Now it's time for our almost brand spanking new feature, The Final Third, in which we ask someone to help us build a football museum by donating a match, a player and an object. Joining me this time is Ace When Saturday Comes writer, Cameron Carter. Cameron, hello, how are you? Hello, I'm okay, Dan, thanks. Um, I'm getting quite Christmassy. Oh, and have you have you hit the mulled wine? Yeah, I have. Um, I, I, I've had a lot of it and it made me almost ill but so I'm, I'm, I'm okay until 2022 with that now I'm going back to standard alcohol I have to apologise for any background interference because it is bin day and it's the empty stage where the, where the neighbour is bringing back 18 different bins um, to each individual house it's a really nice thing they do but it does sound like war <laughs> but hopefully hopefully you're not picking that up too much no no it's like your local helpful neighbor who does it it's helpful neighbor i don't always want his help to be honest with you or his opinions <laughs> or his opinion they give it anything. anyway yeah there's no, nothing lovelier than an unsolicited opinion on your way home from from somewhere is there <laughs> okay well welcome to the museum it's a very beautiful building but it's quite empty as you can see oh. Apart from John walking the case over there, you might see, just give John a wave. Hi, John. That's from yeah, last John, time. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's fine. Side. 
I've been throwing him food every now and again. So yes, welcome and as uh, this week, this fortnight's guest curator, Cameron, tell us what is going to be the match which you will donate to the When Saturday Comes Museum? Well, I, I thought about this and I, I thought I thought quite deeply about mm. it. And I thought, what is a museum for, Dan? Yeah, what is, mm. what is, the, is it to display the finest specimens only? And the answer must be no. It, no. it must be, um, you want to preserve that which might otherwise be lost to the common memory. So um, there are some items that are a bit odd, but they teach us about the evolution of a system. And I've chosen... Fulham against Hereford, September the 25th, 1976. Um, uh, I'll elaborate. Uh, <laughs> I watched it the other day because it's always had a, provided a glow on a kind of a low flame in the corner of my mind somewhere, this, this match. I, I've never watched, I've watched, all I've watched was the big match in, at the time, 76. And I looked at it on YouTube a couple of days ago. And it's just a vaudevillian performance by George Best and Rodney Marsh. They sort of hijacked football for the day for the music hall. And it's, it's just it's people laughing, like the referee. I remember Brian Moore um, saying the referee, even the referees enjoying this. Uh, George Best tackled Rodney Marsh and Rodney Marsh tried to tackle him back. Um, Marsh scored two goals. Les Strong, not ordinarily a facetious player, uh, he, he took a shot, hit the post and ran away laughing. I remember that's just stuck in my memory. And it is true. I, it did, that's still on the recording. You know, it did happen. There's strong laughing while running back to defend. Um, and just the Hereford players look like they bought a ticket for the wrong show. They're, just, they're, they're the only people not smiling in the whole thing. But it's just a wonderful uh, episode in, in, in football. It didn't sort of, doesn't relate to anything else, that game, seemingly. It's just um, two players... That, uh, you know, getting on in age and but enjoying themselves, not so much at stake for them. You know, it's probably coincided. This is why I remember it so much. It's, it's a care, it was a carefree time of my own life. You know, it's a, a year later we moved from our village in Hampshire, and um, it's then I realised that there were decisions being made while I slept. If you know what I mean? You know, there was um, there's a beautiful ignorance about my life before before that point, and this this was a game that took place at the end of that period of, of ignorance. And uh, I think that's why it makes the, sort of the game sort of resonate for me before I heard the, the first strains of the Angel of Doom on his silver trumpet. And um, it was just, and I looked at it again, just like 10 minute highlights on YouTube and it's, it's just glorious. Did you take note of what the crowd reaction was? The, the crowd, you know, singing, enjoying it all? Because if it had taken place in, well, for one place, Essen Park, they would have been so much <laughs> Stop fannying around would have been the phrase that, that really came out quite strongly, I think. <laughs> I, I, they did show, I mean, it showed the Fulham crowd um, and they were sort of seeming to enjoy it. And it showed a bit of a profile shot of Bobby Campbell, the Fulham manager. And they, um, Brian Moore said he was enjoying it, although it wasn't obvious, but, um, you know, he seemed like a more... He'd probably prefer to stop fanning about, to be honest. He looked like that kind of guy. But um, the Hereford players, yeah, they, they looked like they were just the full guys and the straight man, you know, they, they really hadn't um, anticipated all this happening. But yeah, everyone, there did seem to be an atmosphere about, you know, it was before um, people were, sh were shouting Ole and that, but it, it, was, um, it was just a, a wonderful atmosphere of, of, of merriment and devilry. George Best, by this stage, he's getting on a bit and um, didn't have quite the pace. And so he was sort of beating people twice. And it's a bit like, you know, that effect you have on cartoons sometimes where they're running down a corridor and 
using the same pieces of furniture because they can't be asked to draw different bits of furniture for a long sort of chase scene. And it was like, you know, I've seen that defender before, haven't I? He's, passed, he's gone past him before. But it was, he had to kind of double back and beat people again. And, but it's just, I've never really seen a game like it since. And, uh, and, and this is going to make me sound really old, but um, do players smile that much anymore? Oh, it's a, it, it does sound like an old man thing to say. And yet at the same time, <laughs> I agree completely. And... and also Brian Moore's commentary, he was clearly enjoying it. And here's a bit of a quiz question for you, because I looked it up after I watched it on YouTube. Oh. What is the name of the big match theme tune between, at that time, between 73 and 80, the famous one? Oh, because I should know this from you should, speaking yeah, you about should. the composer on a recent podcast and yet I've completely forgotten. Well, it's La Soiree by David Ordini. Oh. That's the one. But it's um, it's oddly titled because it's called La Soiree. And you think that if, um, if you've got guests around and you sort of said, oh, hello, Donald, hello, Veronica, thanks for bringing Matthias Rosé. Um, come in, you know, the other Donalds, my husband, uh, I'm being someone else, has made some volleyball. I come in, you know. Uh, I'll just put some bit of music on in the background for you. You know, it's not. Why is it called La Soiree? It's not. It's not gentle, is it, or even um, sort of ambient? It's like marching music, isn't it? That, that, that's uh, yeah. So that that was my match, and uh, I've, I've just um, it's a glorious thing to watch. Yeah, yeah, lovely thing. Okay, then we've got that in there in a massive case. It's accepted. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which player are you going to donate? Okay, this is slightly unusual, but anyway, I'm going to. Behind my choice is the fact that not all exhibits can be, you know, the Parthenon marbles or Crouching Venus at the British Museum. That I um I found a museum yesterday while I was thinking about this, and um, I found the Jackfield. You may be aware of it, the Jackfield Tile Museum in Ironbridge in Shropshire. Oh, no, that sounds like my kind of place, as you've correctly surmised. <laughs> yes, you see, I've, I've, I, I, I guessed. And I, the one of the bylines on its website says, um, quite invitingly, it says, touch, walk and sit on magnificent tiles. Oh, you can't which, do that anywhere else, can you? <laughs> you can't. No one else. <laughs> I've never had that invitation before. Um, but I think that museums like that are just as key to our understanding of ourselves as humans mm. as the British, you know, the fancy pants oh, British yeah. Museum. So. Um, so that's behind my choice. Um, so I'm going to name a player here. Kenny Dalglish was my favourite player as a child, just because of, he seemed to really enjoy the game. He was a brilliant player. I liked him at Celtic. I'm an Arsenal fan, but I liked him at Liverpool. You know, it's a bit weird. And then when I was an adult, um, Alexander Hleb for Arsenal was, uh, I just loved him. Uh, he's was, well, I've written down in my, in my notes when I was thinking about him home. Uh, master, well, quite Baroque notes, really. Master of the dribble, <laughs> procurator fiscal of keeping possession, Lord <laughs> High Executioner of the last minute pass. Beautiful. And I've been watching bits of him to remind myself, and he would proceed around the pitch, forward, sideways, and backwards, often backwards and sideways. Um, not so much passing defenders as emerging from them. <laughs> still, sort of, still in, in, like remarkably in possession of the ball, but a bit like a you know one of those Labradors that goes across rough terrain and water with it still holding a Vimto bottle, an empty Vimto bottle in its mouth, and it's still got it. And you don't know how it's managed to hold on to it. He was like that. He, he was criticised at the time by Arsenal players for not scoring enough goals, I remember. And I always thought, like I think he thought, well, well that's not really the point. Mm. His instinct was always to pass. And he said it once. He was taught by his coach in Belarus or um, 
pass, pass, pass. That was his like refrain, his motto. And um, it was like this was his climax, not a goal. A good pass was his climax. And um, it's like as if the goal was the goal is for the crowd, but the pass is for you. <laughs> and uh, it was like he was playing his his own game out there. And I think that's what. And he had he had socks around his calves, like low socks as well, mm. which is a beautiful thing in a footballer. I like, yeah. you know, I'm thinking of Jimmy Johnston. Um, Steve Claridge, uh, <laughs> he's my favourite ever player, mm. partially because his idea of the game wasn't to score, which seems a bit sort of almost churlish for him to do that. But but with the Jackfield Tile, Tile Museum in mind, <laughs> my, the player I'm offering, offering you for the museum of the final third is Martin Hayes. Oh, yeah. Do you, <laughs> because <laughs> he, as I, you know, I say, you can't always have the best, no, um, well, that's that's you've stuck with your yeah yeah curatorial principles that you set out. Yes, I feel I've been consistent there because <laughs> he's. I find him the link. Martin Hayes is sort of the link between a decent part player and uh, a title-winning player, and he, he he actually won the title in '89 with Arsenal, famously. But he only just got a winner's medal because he uh, had 17 appearances, 14 as sub. He had one good season, 86, 87. He was our top scorer with 20-odd goals. But after that, he sort of faded away. And you kind of forgot if there was some illness in the squad, he would get a game. You know, oh, Martin Hayes is still there. Yeah. <laughs> and I realised I know very little of him. I looked him up on Google, uh, which is bad for an Arsenal player who won the championship, isn't it? And I found the first Google search line was, um, Martin Hayes is regarded as one of the most significant talents to emerge in the world of Irish music, and I thought that's the wrong Martin Hayes. Isn't it? <laughs> so I, I I looked further down, about twelfth down there. It's um, I found out you know, Martin Hayes was was a professional footballer, um, and he's um, I can tell you he's uh, one point eight three meters tall. Oh, he's got quite a short Wikipedia entry. <laughs> not that short. It's not just his height. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm going to put him in because people. What I'm thinking of the people coming to the museum will think. Why is Martin Hayes here amongst all this classic mm. stuff? And then somewhere on the little on the tile that the, the notice it will say, this man won a championship medal, and because he was there in the right place, and you know he was on the he was on he was at the ground most of the time, you know, and uh, he wasn't like a, a world beater, but he was good enough to win a championship medal. So I just think he's, these are important players to remember. You know? Yeah, people will take away. A lesson in that be more Hayes be more Martin Hayes just yeah do your right. bit but yeah. yeah so that's fine you don't have to all be Rocky Row Castle yeah you can be Martin Hayes it's fine it's okay <laughs> which object are you donating to our museum right um well this is uh probably a bit obvious it's a bit of a crossover between this band and when sadly comes I've noticed oh, I seem to notice but it's a Duke of Prague away kit Really, it's just to celebrate. It's symbolic of the link between football and music, uh, which isn't often successfully made mm. or bridged, um, which are my two favourite things behind a hot bath, probably football and music. <laughs> and uh, the Duke of Prague Awake is my favourite living band, Half Man, Half Biscuit. I love, I love this band. Uh, I see it's probably the only band I go to see nowadays, uh, just for their sort of their blend of, unique blend of dour absurdism. And I think... Uh, Taylor Parks has done, who writes for When Saturday Comes, has, has done a brilliant article. It's online um, about the band. It's, it's uh, tells you everything you need to know about them. But they've done several songs that are of 
uh, least about or obliquely about football. And I made a little list of them. It won't take long. Is that okay? To... Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the referee's alphabet, which just basically goes through uh, Nigel Blackwell talking through the letters of the alphabet, reference to, special reference to referees. Uh, Friday night and the gates are low. I was a teenage armchair Honved fan. Bob Wilson, Anchorman, which is, has a long, sort of really well-maintained level of incredulity about it. Uh, dead men don't need season tickets. Gubba lookalikes. And even men with steel hearts, brackets, love to see a dog on the pitch, close brackets, which I like. Again, that's a side issue of songs with brackets. I also yeah. sort of like. Um, it's a bit of an obvious choice, really, because uh, there's, I, I imagine that people who, who read When Saturday Comes also know about this band. I just imagine that. But I'm, I'm on a sort of a path now that um, in about 10 years' time, I'll just be sitting in an armchair in safety pants, just reciting the names of people I used to like in place of actual <laughs> conversation and so you know oh I used to lie I'll tell you who I used to like and then people just come in and out the room and I'll see you in a couple of years Cameron I'll tell you someone else I like so it's just they, they hardly ever write a good, bad song they're all good songs in my opinion and it's rare to find a good football song it's almost as rare as a good football film so yeah, the Duke's Private Wake is my object uh, to celebrate music and football interface, but also I'm just, as a side issue, I'm wondering if, it struck me recently, I wonder if Duke of Prague have investigated why their Awake sells quite well in the UK. Before <laughs> so they must sort of see their sales and think, what's going on there? <laughs> well, we can sell them in the merchandise shop, the museum shop, but what about the museum cafe? I would like you to donate a a snack and maybe even a drink to the museum cafe for people to relax and think about what they've just seen. Yeah, well, they have to think about, they have to have a place to sort of actually sort of think about what they've seen. <laughs> um, so I'm going to, my, if I'm sort of under pressure, which is very rarely, but um, bacon flavoured tuck biscuits is oh. my, well, like what I go to. Oh. I, get those in, I don't want to advertise home bargains, but I'm going to say their name. Oh, 45 pence. My, my only disappointment, and we're still going to have them in there with these biscuits, is I always hoped that they were a, a TUC, a trade union congress <laughs> biscuit, and, and I felt in favour of them. And I wish they'd been a bit like sports biscuits that depicted, you know, cricket, rugby, whatever on them, um, depicting great moments in trade union history. So little <laughs> stick men, tall puddle martyr stick men, or just some men on a picket line warming their hands in a barrel of fire. That, that that's maybe maybe they'll 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 endorse together. Maybe the TUC will get hold of this idea when they listen. I don't, to honestly, why have they not had that? Well, it, idea I just think they were the most trade union friendly biscuit on offer. Um, maybe they are. Maybe it's subliminal. I don't. Know. Yeah, but I think subliminally, I I, I see the TUC up there, and I uh, yeah, I sort of I've gravitated towards them. Then I've enjoyed the sort of heavy salt taste, and and it's all coincided, and it sort of staved off the feelings of pressure and. TUC, yeah, I think maybe I never, it never occurred to me that. But yeah, that's my hope. So they'll start, yeah, go along the sports biscuits route and put some famous moments or trade union. They could do little carvings of of great of, of Len McCluskey and things. What what about a a drink to wash this delight down? Uh, again, this is to do not stress so much, but um, memories of you know Proustian memories of childhood illness or just skiving off school really. But hot Ribena. Oh. Not, not cold Ribena, yeah, okay, but um, you know, football matches often you cold, aren't you? So yeah. I'd ask for a, a quite as little, quite more than a little bit of Ribena in the bottom of a, mm. ideally a paper or plastic cup, mm. and then a kettle of hot water poured on that. Beautiful. It's like the people's red wine. <laughs> <laughs>
So, uh, so it's going to be yeah, bacon flavored TUC biscuits and uh, hot ribena. You have been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Do join me, Andy and Harry, again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter. <laughs>